Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Well, good morning and welcome to Bible Center Church. I'm Pastor Mike, if we have not had the opportunity to meet, and I'm so glad you're here. If you're watching us from home, we are so glad you are here. Our hope is that this feels like family to you, that you have relationships here, that you have people that know your name and you know them. Uh, This morning, I wanna start with just a quick announcement. Next week, we're gonna be having baptisms. We've got a couple lined up. If you're someone who has placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, we would love to give you the opportunity to get baptized if you haven't gotten baptized at this point. The Bible calls us as Christians to make a public proclamation of our internal faith. Baptism is how we do that. Perhaps you're not sure where you are spiritually. Maybe you're sitting at home and you don't know where you are spiritually. In your journey, there's a moment where we make a decision to place our faith in Jesus as our Savior, the one who died for our sins, and as our Lord, the one who runs and rules our life. If you're ready to make that decision, we would love to have a conversation with you. Maybe somebody brought you this morning. You could talk to them. Anyone you've seen on this stage or anyone you see out at our welcome tent would love to have a conversation with you about how to make that decision to put Jesus in the center of your life. And if that's a decision you make, we'd love to baptize you next week. So just wanna make sure that you knew about that. So as we jump into our last sermon on James. Um, It makes me want to shed a bit of a tear. I've loved James. Uh, Though James, if you've really let yourself hear the words of James, be pushed by the sermons, if you spent time in the Word of God, uh, in the book of James, you've probably felt some pokes along the way. And we're probably not done poking because that's just what James does. In terms of expectations for this morning, I'd love to jump in and go like word by word, phrase by phrase, This morning, as we talked about how to put this sermon together, uh, the team and I decided we should do more of a broad overview. So I'll jump into a couple of the end verses a little deeper, but we're going to look at kind of the overview, the broad push that James gives us, and we're going to focus on those things. You're going to feel us going kind of quickly sometimes, then slowing down sometimes. If you've got your Bible open, you're going to be turning some pages. If you've got your app open, right there in your outline, if you just click on the verses in your app, it'll take you right to the verses so you can keep up as we jump around. Uh, In terms of the context of today, it's really the context of the whole book, because we're looking at it in a broad way. So the big context of James's Jesus Transforms. In fact, much of the Bible is about Jesus Transforms. And when I say that, I'm talking about God's desire to change us from the inside out. His goal isn't just to change our behaviors, but to change our desires and our passions. And we literally are changed from the inside out. That's what transformation is all about. But then James narrows it down a little bit. And he talks about suffering, suffering in the life of the believer. And it's coming. If it isn't already in your life, it's coming. If you just got out of it, hopefully you have a season without it, but you'll end up back in it. And he actually will tell us that suffering is not our enemy. It's part of the process. And then he'll finish today, and then he'll kind of push in the book that this all happens in the context of a spiritual community. You're not designed to do it alone. And if you're doing it alone, it's going to be much harder than if you have some spiritual friends to grab a hold of, to help you through the process. So often we put all of our energy into avoiding suffering, to easing suffering, to making suffering go away. I think we often view it as though we're standing in the middle of some train tracks and there's a a train coming at us. We view that as suffering. And the only natural response to that type of a situation is to get off the tracks, right? To move out of the way. 
But the way James and the Bible talks about suffering is very different. It's not you're on the tracks and here comes the locomotive. It's here comes a potential friend, a companion for the journey, someone who will jump into your life to help change and transform your life. So instead of viewing it as something to avoid, perhaps what James is inviting us to and the Lord is inviting us to is to extend our hand and grab a hold of suffering. As we go a little deeper into the book, the idea is then you extend the other hand and grab a hold of your spiritual community. And this is the pathway of transformation. We need both of those things. You can't really find a picture of an adult doing this. But this just reminds me of the fact that we're still dependent on our father, this picture of a child. We need the suffering that comes in. We need our spiritual community. And that's how we grow. So as the Bible in a bigger context talks about suffering, Things like this are said. Jesus looks at the folks in John chapter 16, verse 33, and he says about suffering, you're all gonna have it. In the world, you will have tribulation. You're not gonna be able to avoid it. You're not gonna be able to simply step to the left or step to the right and watch it go by. Like, it's gonna hit you dead center. Tribulation is coming. Suffering is a part of this life. Jesus was honest. Jesus was open. It's good for us to know that. Paul, when he's talking to his young friend, Timothy, as he's mentoring Timothy and discipling Timothy, he has some similar words. In 2 Timothy 4, 5, he says this to Timothy, but you be sober in all things or be clear-minded in all things. Endure hardship. He didn't say run away from hardship. He didn't say minimize hardship. He didn't say avoid hardship. He said, sit in it for a little bit. Let it work in you. Let it be a part of your journey. Endure hardship as, a, as an evangelist, as he fulfills the work of his ministry. It's a part of the process. In 2 Timothy 2.3, he takes it even another step and he says, suffer hardship with me like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So Paul is standing in suffering. If you've read much about Paul, he spends a lot of time. In fact, I don't know if there's many points in Paul's life where there isn't suffering going along as he goes through ministry. So he's standing in suffering and he invites Timothy, suffer with me. And he pulls Timothy up and lets Timothy stand in it with him. And he encourages him to do so. He doesn't say, avoid it, run from ministry, run from spiritual opportunities because there might be suffering. He says, step into it, suffer with me like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That picture alone kind of summarizes the sermon. You don't avoid suffering, but you step into it and you don't step into it alone. The Lord is there and your brothers and sisters in Christ are there. So today we're gonna to look at a couple things from James. We're gonna look at sources of suffering, the transforming power of suffering, and then the necessity of community in and through suffering when it comes to sources of suffering. When I say suffering, I'm talking about all kinds of suffering. The stuff you feel on the inside, the suffering that comes on the outside, the suffering that takes place in relationships, the suffering that comes from doubt and sin and struggle. All those things are several sources for those. One, James talks about that a major source is from ourselves. In chapter one, verses 14 through 15, he talks about temptation. And when he talks about temptation, he says, it's, it's not from the Lord that you're being tempted, it's from you. 
Now, when he talks about being from you, he doesn't even say it's the things outside of you that are tempting you. So there could be 10 different things, 10 different relationships and people in between you and me. And there might be a particular couple of things that tempt me and different things that tempt you. Why? Because temptation comes from desires and wants and preferences and pleasures that take place within us. So the temptation actually starts here. And when temptation turns into sin, then sin starts to turn into suffering. When we sin or when we're sinned against, it always turns into suffering. So one of the places where it comes from is the gunk, the desires that still just rattle around inside of us. In chapter four, verse one, there he talks about this internal conflict inside of us, this war that's taking place, this push and this pull, this friction between this desire in me to love God, to let myself lean into God and live life for God versus this tendency inside of me to live life for myself and to lean into what the world offers. Because the world is always gonna say, I've got you. And the world's gonna offer to you quick fixes to your internal pain. The world's saying, don't suffer. It's foolish to suffer. Here's something else to distract you. So there's this tendency inside of us to lean this way. And though there might be a moment where it feels like suffering is eased, long-term it's suffering to walk away from God and to give your faith and your trust and your heart to the world. So sometimes it comes from us. Another source of suffering, according to James, is from others. And the context here is like brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes we do it to ourselves. In chapter two, verses one through four, he talks about favoritism. And in this church, and sometimes in this church, and sometimes in my heart, and sometimes in your heart, we tend to promote some folks and kind of push down other folks. It's a tendency. The example in the book, in the book of James is, those who have a lot tend to get the really good seats. And those who don't have as much, they get the not so good seats. Like at your table, you might have a seat of preference. So the person who has the most gets the seat of preference. And we see this inside of us. How do you pick the people you interact with? Do you pick the person that looks like they're hurting, struggling in pain? Or do you pick the person who's smiling, who seems to have it all together? There's a tendency in us to be drawn to those who we can get things from and to push those away who we think are gonna draw us into difficulty and suffering. So even within our hearts, we have to check because when we do that to one another, we create suffering in the lives of other people. Chapter three, verses five through 10, James talks about our tongue and our words. Our tongue and our words can be used to give life, to support, to encourage, to strengthen. Or as you know, the tongue could be used to push down, to hurt, to cause suffering, to cut someone's legs out from under them. The tongue can be beautiful or it can be a straight up disease, something that sets people on fire. So here and here and here, there's a tendency where we don't watch our tone. We are quick to speak, quick to be angry and quick to win arguments, even at the expense of others. Back in chapter four, verses one through two, it talks about all these conflicts and quarrels that are taking place amongst the people. And these conflicts and quarrels are taking place because each person has their own set of preferences. And they're not fighting for the other person, they're fighting for themselves. So the conflict they feel inside of them becomes a conflict they feel outside of them. 
as they push and knock people out of the way to get what they want. Sometimes we do that in very little ways. So Seinfeld, I'll be honest, Seinfeld's one of my favorite shows. Um, I'll go back and I'll watch the reruns all the time. I also like The Office. And this same scene is in both series. Basically, there's a point where George Costanza or Michael Scott in the other series, there's smoke, there's clearly a fire. And their first instinct is not get the children and women out. Like George here goes running through a birthday party for little kids and he knocks the clown over. He knocks the old lady with the walker over. Kids go flying and he runs out first. This is a picture of our tendency. We tend to do this. When we feel the smoke, when we feel the suffering, when we feel the urge to get something that we want, by golly, you better not get in my way because you're gonna get a hand to the head, head to the ground, right? That's what George does. Sometimes we do that and we treat each other that way, bringing suffering into our lives. Another source of suffering is simply the world. There's a tendency towards mistreatment within the world. In chapter five, verses one through six, we spent some time a couple weeks ago reading about these wealthy folks who owned land and employed people, likely people in the church, and they were withholding pay from those folks. So the Bible goes on to say in that chapter that these folks were suffering. They may have actually been dying because they had no resources to feed themselves or their family. Within us, there's a tendency to look out for us, even if that means we have to mistreat someone else. And when we do that, we contribute to what the world is doing and just causing a tendency towards suffering as everyone's looking out for their own agendas, protecting self first at the expense of others. You and I live in a broken world, broken by sin, and part of the aspects of that is sickness. We're gonna deal with sickness, and sickness so often leads to suffering. Not just your sickness, but anyone in your life who you love. When you know someone's hurting, you also suffer. In chapter five, let's jump into the last couple of verses a little bit. In chapter five, verses 14 and 16, it says this. If anyone among you is sick, and he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. So sickness and death are a part of life. And in these moments, the picture here is we run to one another, and there is prayer that takes place. I think the first question to ask with this text is, do we still believe that God heals today? This is 2,000 years ago. Do we believe God still heals today? Biblically, theologically, there is nothing in my opinion that would argue against God's ongoing intervention into our lives. It didn't say that this reality should end. This is a typical ongoing aspect of God's church that we pray for one another, we pray that God would heal. So I would suggest that God does continue to heal. When I was like 19, Jen and I, we weren't married, but we were at a, um, a summer long like retreat in New Jersey with Campus Crusade for Christ. It was a place where like 100 kids lived in a house. We got trained in evangelism, discipleship, and leadership. And for half the summer, the staff team was there. Crusade staff were there. And one of the moms shared one night at dinner that her daughter and her daughter's friend were playing in one of the rooms. At some point, her daughter had fallen off the couch or something and hit a table with her arm. And her arm was clearly broken. 
Bone didn't protrude from skin, but bone was clearly no longer straight. You know, you want these to be straight, right? Well, it was bent. It was clearly bent, lots of tears. So she leaves the room to call her husband because that was a day and age when you had to go to the phone, the phone wasn't with you. So she had to leave the room to go to the phone, called the husband, and by the time she came back, the two little girls were in the room, there were no more tears, and her daughter held up her arm and say, mommy, we prayed for it and Jesus healed us, or healed me. Both of the children said Jesus came into the room and healed her. Now, an adult didn't see it, but an adult doesn't need to see it. That'd be a really weird thing for a child to make up. So I'm not gonna say I'm gonna use a story to base my theology on, but I believe my theology points to that story as an example of God does intervene. Even when a child is praying for a child, God can heal someone. He can jump in when there's a prayer of faith. So the mom told that story with tears and there was no reason to believe anything other than what they had experienced. It was kind of a moment for me. I'll always remember that moment. So when it comes to praying, one of the roles of our elders is to pray for the sick. Now, the picture that's given here is for the very sick. So it's not like you have a stuffy nose, we call the elders, they put oil on you, we pray for your stuffy nose. The idea here is that they're calling the elders to go to the person because likely the person can't come to the elders. It also gives the picture of the elders praying over the person, likely because the person can't get up. So when someone's very sick, the elders show up and they pray for this person. And it says that prayers offered in faith by the righteous are powerful, they're effective. Elijah is the example. But that does not mean that we always get the answers that we're looking for. The prayer of the righteous are effective, but that does not mean you always get the answers that you're praying for. For example, presently in this room and in our church, there is no one who is here who is a part of this first century church. Why? Every single one of them eventually suffered and died. It wasn't like every time they were on the edge of dying, there was a prayer and they'd pop back up, okay? Like it doesn't last forever. Part of being in this world that is broken before Jesus comes back is we all eventually suffer, we all eventually die. Now there are moments where God jumps in and he heals and he helps, but all of us eventually suffer and all of us eventually die. So God can bring healing, but sometimes instead he brings other things like peace, like perspective, like a passion for your forever life with him. So God can also increase faith and maturity in those moments as we pray for one another. Sometimes the best answers to our prayers are not even based on the particular requests that we make. My grandfather passed away of dementia about 10 or 11 years ago. He was in a home and it was hard to watch. Like I still remember like the first time that he didn't know who I was, but as he continued to descend into that, he didn't know who his own children were. Like he forgot who my dad was. With dementia, eventually you forget that you have to eat. Like organs start to, like eventually it takes you out unless God does something miraculous. So of course we'd pray, God, would you heal my grandfather from dementia? Now, my grandfather is someone who I probably shared the gospel with my grandfather more than anybody else throughout my childhood. That was a consistent, no thank you, not interested, couldn't move forward in that conversation. So we prayed for him to be healed so that he might have the opportunity to hear the gospel. Instead, this is what God did. 
a nurse came up to me and my family. She knew that we were Christians. And she mentioned, hey, about a week ago, and this is near the end, your grandfather had a moment where he was clear-minded. He was lucid for about 10 minutes. And the first thing he looked at me and asked was, how do I have a relationship with God? So the nurse, who's a Christian, shared the gospel with him. And she said that he prayed with her to receive Christ in that moment. The prayer was that you would heal him from dementia. And God said, I've got something else in mind. And he, he brought his son home rather than raising a body from a bed. So the Lord knows how to answer prayers that need to be answered. He gets it. His eternal perspective is something to be trusted. Now, in this passage, it's interesting how it starts to transition to confessing sin and getting right, not just with the Lord, but getting right with one another. In verse 16, which I'll be honest, is not an easy verse, it says this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous man, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. So we don't only confess our sins and our struggles to God, we're actually called to confess our sins and struggles to one another. He has to tell us to do that because we won't naturally do that. In fact, if anything, we'll typically avoid at all costs doing something like that. Is this not uncomfortable? Because I think for us, there's a tendency to believe that if I were to share with someone that I'm struggling, if I were to share with someone my sin, I would get the finger of judgment, right? They would look down on me. They would judge me. They would guilt me. They would shame me. So therefore, fear takes over. Instead of confidence in God, fear of man takes over, and I don't share what's going on. But God's call here is to pull us into community to the point where we can look at each other and have conversations about what's really going on. Now, this is not natural. Therefore, God has to call us to do it. He has to encourage us to do it in the form of a command. So confession is a part of our everyday life. Again, bringing up the idea of suffering in community is something we hold on to. So in addition to sources of suffering, James also talks about the transforming power of suffering. One of the things he does with suffering is he gives us a new perspective. In chapter one, verses two and three, he talks about taking it all joy or consider it all joy when trials come your way. He goes on to explain why you can consider it a joyful opportunity, a joyful experience. Because through the suffering, you grow in endurance, in character, in perseverance. It's through that suffering that you mature in Christ. So without that suffering, without that trial, without that hardship, you would look less like Jesus. So somehow, perspective-wise, if we, if we could realize that going through the suffering, going through the hardship makes me look more like him, and it's God's grace in my life to go through something hard, then I can embrace it. I can be thankful for it. I can consider it all joy when something hard comes into my life, but it doesn't happen without perspective. In chapter one, verse 12, it talks about the fact that those who persevere under trial, okay? It goes back to this idea of trial and hardship. Those who persevere under trial will receive the crown of life that's been promised to them by Jesus. So if you persevere and you go through it, the benefit is you get the crown of life. Now, it's not some little round crown that gets put on your head. Likely, it's referring to the fact that you get forever eternal life with Jesus himself. 
So going through this life that has struggle and trial gets you to a place where one day you look at him face to face and he says, child, come home. You receive the crown of eternal life. That helps my perspective. He kind of comes back to that in chapter five, verses seven through 13. Pastor John hit it last week. He helps us with perspective. He basically says, you can get through hard things and you can have patience in suffering because Jesus is coming back. He connects them together. Because of the return of Jesus, you can get through your suffering today. So by looking to tomorrow, a return that is on the horizon, you can get through your today. So he talks about the coming of the Lord. At the same time, a couple of verses later, he says, you also need to know the character of the Lord. He's full of compassion. He's full of mercy. So he's going to return triumphant, but in these hard moments, you're going to experience his care, his comfort. So even last week, John said, sometimes he has, he's going to care for you this way by holding you in his arms. And sometimes he's going to care for you by holding you in the suffering. Both are forms of loving care of our father. And both we should receive with gratitude and thankfulness. Somehow with perspective, we can say for joy, I go through the hardships. For joy, I invite them in. So in addition to perspective for this transforming power of suffering, he calls us to commit ourselves to prayer through it. He says in chapter five, verse 13, if anyone is suffering, then he must pray. That's a verse you could memorize. If you are right now suffering, you should pray. That's what it says. So why pray? Because as you go through suffering, you're not designed to go through suffering without Jesus. You're designed to go through suffering with Jesus. So you go through suffering while you're talking to him in conversations with the Savior. You are going through it together. He's holding you as you go through it. So in James, he talks about prayer a couple different times. In chapter one, verse five, he says, you should pray for wisdom. If you need it, pray for it. God loves to answer that with a yes. Here's some wisdom. In chapter one, verse six, it talks about the fact we should pray with faith. So I go before God, it's a God that I trust. If you go a little bit farther into the book of James, in chapter four, verse three, it says, many of you are going to God with selfish motives. You're basically praying to God, asking for all the things you want. There's evil intent, there's selfishness. And the Bible also says that God likes to say no to those kinds of prayers. So sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no. And it was, it's with God's wisdom that he does so. So in chapter four, verse 10, we're called to come before the Lord with humility. It says we humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. So that's a picture of our prayer life. And in that picture of our prayer life, we are on knees. We have tears in our eyes and we recognize who he is versus who we are. And with that attitude, we come to the Lord trusting him. We don't come to the Lord trusting our faith, our effectiveness, our request. We trust the goodness of our good God to give good gifts to the children that he loves. But so often we view prayer like a trip to a fast food restaurant. We basically walk up to the counter, we put in our order, and we expect within 60 seconds that it's on the tray in front of us, hot, warm, and ready to eat, right? That's just how we tend to look at prayer. Like, God should give me exactly what I want when I want it. 
So in our prayer life, we bring in this American sense of instant gratification and customer service. God, you get a thumbs down because you didn't get it as quickly as I wanted. You didn't give it to me when I expected it. It's not as warm as I wanted it. Like we have this tendency to look at God like we look at the fast food person. That is not okay. Instant gratification is not how it works. If you were to come over to my house, I've got two garage doors. The one on the left is bowed out a little bit. The reason for that is because I hit the garage door to open and I was ready to go. So I started to leave the garage before the door came all the way up. So I backed my car into my garage door. If you've ever taken your own personal property and damaged your own personal property, that is one of the worst feelings, right? But it was all about lack of patience. I wanted to be on my way, get to where I wanted to go. Sometimes we do that same thing with God. We just push and we go fast and we treat him like a guy who hands out Big Macs. So we often forget this. The most important things in life are not instant and they're not tangible. The most important things in life are not instant. They are not tangible. You can't grab them. So when it comes to things like this, increased love, increased contentment, wisdom, patience, faith, these things are not instantaneous and they're not tangible, yet they're the most important things we could receive. And so often we come to God and say, God, I want a Big Mac. And God says, here's some hope. Here's some joy. Here's some peace in your moment of hardship. How do we respond in that moment? I just said Big Mac. I don't want, I just want a Big Mac. Hot, fresh, ready to eat. Or do we say, God, you know us best. Thank you. I trust you. In humility, you bow before your father with gratitude. That's a question for us to keep coming back to as we spend time in our prayer life. How do we look at God? As the all-wise God who loves us, or as a cosmic bellhop who is there to meet our needs instantly. So we have perspective and we have prayer. Those two things help us, help God then use this process to transform us. But all this takes place within a context of community and intentional spiritual community. Spiritual friends who know your name, you know their name, they know your life, your lifestyle, your tendencies, your habits, and you know the same about them. In chapter five, verses 19 through 20, it says this. My brethren, if any among you strays, so he's talking to the church about the church. This would be like him talking to you about you all. If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that the one who turns a sinner from the errors of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So here we're called to honor one another. We're called to take care of one another, to pray for one another, to jump in with one another, to confess sins to one another, to help out with struggle, to help out with straying, to help out with suffering. We do this together and we remind one another of his perspective. We remind, remind one another of the need for patience based upon his coming and his compassion. And we help one another persevere in and through trial that we might one day receive that crown of life. We do it together. We grab a hold of suffering. We grab a hold of our spiritual community. Both of these things matter in the pathway of transformation. Friday night, my wife and I went to dinner with another couple that we love, we're good friends with. And I just remember throughout the beginning of the evening, the way it started was, because we hadn't seen each other in a while, we just looked at each person. How are you doing? 
and you sit there and you wait until they tell you how they're doing. And if you're like most humans, you start with fine, and then you go to like two okay things, and then everybody stares at you for 10 seconds, and you say, okay, this is how I'm really going. And then there's a tear, and then there's real conversation. So even with my wife, she started off with just a little bit of a, I'm okay. I kind of look at her and smile, and she goes, okay, I'm not okay. And then we just go right into it. But you need to have people in your life who you can get there with and get there with pretty quickly. You're not okay. You need someone sitting across from the table to hear that, to hold that, to help you persevere through that and to pray for you and to love you and to care for you. How do you tangibly get that in your life? We try really hard at Bible Center to make that next step as easy as possible for you. So on Sunday mornings, we've literally squashed our Sunday mornings together. If you've noticed, there's only about 15 minutes between each service if we don't preach too long. So we try to squish it together so that you can walk out of your service into a Sunday morning group. And in those Sunday morning groups, you're gonna have a little content and you're gonna have connection. Both of those things matter. We're doing some content right now, but what you also need is connection. So it's not the mini sermon, it's an opportunity for community and connection. And from there, you meet somebody, you get to know their name. Lord willing, you take them to lunch. You find a hobby that you share. You spend some time together so that you look like what we got to do on Friday night. You wanna have friends that go deeper with you. We also have discipleship groups. With discipleship groups, it's a little larger commitment than it is to a Sunday morning group. A Sunday morning group, you show up as often as you can. A discipleship group, you commit to being together. In the first two pages of that book, which is free to you out on that table out there, it'll tell you how to start one. So a discipleship group isn't something you jump into. We don't have a bunch of them offered on the wall, but it's something you kind of start. You find a person, you say, would you like to start a group? And then you and that other person find one more person. Now you've got a group and you commit to a certain amount of time together. You read God's word together and you do a couple other things. I'm gonna suggest all these things sound a lot like James. You start your time by sharing an up and a down from the week, a high and a low, just like James talks about. And then you spend time praying for each other, just like James talks about. And then you share something you've learned and you share something you want to apply, just like the whole Bible talks about. So it sets you up for an opportunity to have this spiritual community, which you so desperately need, which I so desperately need as we go through this life where there will be hardship and suffering. You don't endure and persevere by yourself. You need Jesus and you need Jesus's people, your brothers and sisters. So you could go out there, grab a book and start one today. The only thing I ask from you is your name and a contact number. I'd love to follow up and see if I can help you in any way as you potentially start a group. So those are two ways to jump in. As we exit the book of James and we prepare our hearts for communion, Jesus is actively, intentionally transforming you and I, his children from the inside out. He's committed to the process. He didn't save you and leave you. He saved you and is now transforming you. He does, does this in and through suffering. Suffering isn't something to be avoided. Sometimes it's something to grab a hold of. And he also does this in and through your spiritual community. So you hold on to suffering as a companion, as a friend, and you grab a hold of your people. You've got to have people. Let's end the book of James by doing what he called us to do, praying for one another. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us find our people, our people who love you and are willing to love us as we love them. We persevere together as the people of God, not alone. 
So Lord, whether someone's watching from at home or they're sitting here today, help us take our next step. As we prepare for communion, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to examine our hearts, allow us to get right with you even in these moments of confession. Father, I also pray that you allow us to learn how to confess to one another. May we remember you, Jesus, your body and your blood that was shed and broken for us. In Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.